Hello and welcome to Unraveled, a podcast series where we'll be trying to understand what the future of our world could look like in a few years. In each episode, we'll look at how some of the industries that shape how we live and connect are changing by speaking to the people who know them best. We'll dive into sectors like politics, music, healthcare, housing and business, and we hope you'll join us every step of the way. My name is Efwam Fojo and I'll be your host as we pull on the threads to unravel the state of the future. In this episode, we'll be looking at how the ways we document knowledge will evolve in the future. Producer Alison Hannaford explores how the popularity of ebooks is impacting the book publishing industry. My name is Efwam Fojo. And this is the first episode of Unraveled. Hi, my name is Allison Hannaford. I'm a journalist and an avid reader. I used to have bookshelves filled with my favorite books, but a couple of years ago, I had some really bad luck and my apartment was infested with bedbugs. Yikes. So in researching how to get rid of bedbugs, I learned that they often live in the spines of books. I was heartbroken, but I needed to get rid of a lot of my books. Well, since then, I've changed how I read. I mostly buy ebooks, but I, I like them. I like that I can read my books anytime and anywhere because they're stored in the cloud. I can access them on my computer or my tablet, or even in a pinch, I can access them on my phone. Well, I began to wonder if other people had noticed that they're shifting to eBooks as well. So I started talking to my friends and asked them which format they preferred. And you'd be surprised that some people had some pretty strong views about this. So I decided to take this a step further and write about this shift to ebooks. And I interviewed three professionals about where they saw the future of book publishing. I talked to Susan Renouf, Christine Raines, and Anna Porter. Christine Raines is an author and she writes speculative fiction. She's published five novels, more than 25 novellas, and nearly 40 short stories. And she's also a good friend of mine. I'm going to read an excerpt from my newest release, Shudder of Spectres. It's the first book in the Chthonia trilogy. It's a lit RPG fantasy adventure, which is basically a book where the characters get sucked into the game and must play out the game knowing they're in a game. It's like Jumanji. This is like the, the famous one people know. All right, Jacqueline raised her hands, and there was silence. Chthonia, realm of the red sun and 13 moons, a land devastated by the Spectre Plague 115 years ago. You were born a few generations past that horror, but you must live in its dark shadow, for the nightmare continues on. All those who died from the virus still wander and wail. At night, countless ghosts shimmer into being and terrorize the living. My heartbeat quickened as the excitement rose. She was such a great storyteller. You have all come together because you've heard 
that there may be a way to put these tortured souls to rest and reclaim the land for the living. Each of you, with your own special talents, the knowledge you've researched, and the rumors you've heard, Jacqueline stood and walked over to rest a hand on Ainsley's head. Saluza Sarlswin, elven mage of the Falling Waters clan, accompanying you is your younger sister, Ezeray, a popular bard in your clan, but only in your clan. She smirked and touched my head. Wow. That, like, gave me chills. That's awesome. It's absolutely the next book on my reading list. You know, when I was in high school, a bunch of us got together on Saturdays to play RPGs. It was a lot of fun. Let me think. I think that our characters were, like, in this post-apocalyptic world where we woke up in this abandoned bus terminal and kind of had to find our way through. Um, I actually used that that game as the basis for my first novel-length story that I ever wrote back in the early 90s, I think. Well, that was actually just before I met Christine. We met in college. And writing was a big part of our friendship. Like, it was our common interest, and we talked a lot about it um, over the years. And I remember back in the day, we used to only dream about what it would be like to have our work published. And it's funny because now she's a published author and I'm a published journalist. So when we got together the other day, we talked about what it feels like when you've something you've written is published. And I asked her what it was like the first time she had ever seen something that she had written published in a book. I knew when it was coming. We have a mailbox at the end of our driveway. It's a little walk, 15 seconds to walk out to that mailbox. So got to remember to make sure I'm not wearing sloppy pants or... <laughs> I open it right there outside at the mailbox. And the very first thing I did was just flip it open and just kind of flip the pages and not necessarily reading anything at the moment, but just enjoying the sensation of actually holding a book that I'm in. I met Anna Porter through her daughter, Catherine, who is my boss at the New York Times. She's lovely, and it's no surprise to me that I would love Anna as well. Um, Anna is a writer who spent decades working in book publishing. She used to be the vice president and editor-in-chief at McClelland and Stewart, which, in case you weren't familiar with that, is one of the biggest publishing houses in Canada. She left McClelland and Stewart to start her own publishing company called Key Porter Books, which she ran until she chose to retire. And she's still working in publishing as a writer. She's written many novels. She's won all sorts of awards. Um, I'm reading one of her books right now. It's called The Appraisal. It's just fabulous. I caught up to her just before she was heading into a meeting with her agent to discuss making one of her novels into a television series. When Anna's first novel, Hidden Agenda, was launched in 1985, her publisher, Jack McClelland, made some noise to announce its release. The first body in that particular mystery is offed on the subway at Summerhill. The thought, of course, is possible that he may have been what the people on the subways call a jumper. 
But it turns out, of course, that's not the case. He was murdered. My publisher set up a launch at this, that particular subway station. And I knew, you know, what the gag was. And he came with some flowers and, and it was just hilariously funny. And there was a guy there who was impersonating the murderer. And he was kind of had his, had his hat down and his, and his collar up and everything. And the city TV did the show on this particular, because it was so, so much fun. And, you know, people were coming down the, the platform and it was just a gag. You know, publishers don't do much of that anymore. Christine's first time getting something published was a little bit different because most of her stuff goes straight to ebook. Of course, everyone would love to win a publishing contract at a large publishing house, but most of us self-publish going straight to E. And as far as I can tell, it's actually the cheaper alternative. But whether it's E or print, Christine is really, really excited when any of her books come out. It was very exciting to see it all put together in that proper format that looks so pretty with the cover and the table of contests all linked together and just flip through the pages. And, you know, just to be like, wow, this is my book. Every single time a book comes out, that's the feeling. It never gets old. It never ceases to surprise me. Susan Renouf, also a former vice president of McClelland and Stewart, is the editor-in-large at ECW Press. Well, I had told her that I figured all publishers release the e-version of their books before the paper version, but she said no. Apparently, everything is published at the same time. The workflow, how, how we tackle editing and production in uh, print and E is exactly the same. Like it all happens at the same time. It used to be that we were kind of playing catch up. We were all learning. So the, the print book was, you know, first and foremost, and then, you know, maybe an ebook would get done later and maybe it wouldn't. And I think that one of the things that has really changed is that we've all changed how we work so that the production flows, the things that were required to be done to have both editions appear at the same time is now basically business as usual for all of us. Anna tells me that publishing itself has changed. It used to be that publishers were almost like publicists who would promote their authors all over the world. She used to go to book fairs and she always took a special interest in her writers. Catherine told me that sometimes they even stayed with her and her family I think, uh, uh, I think a lot of the publishing business uh, has been taken over by people who really are accountants at heart, rather than people who are engaged uh, with the whole excitement of being with authors and publishing books. I learned my trade from, um, from Jack McClellan, and he was a showman. He did all kinds of things to get his authors' names known. So when I went into the business, I was trying to do some of that kind of fun stuff. I was lucky that my publisher thought that would be a great thing to do with my first book. 
Catherine told me that the Porter household was full of books and all about literature, and that when Anna was in publishing, she would often invite authors like Margaret Atwood or Farley Mowat and Margaret Lawrence to her house for dinner. She told me about parties that Anna threw where her guests included some of the most creative and incredible minds in Canadian literature. And you know that she loved books so much that her house was filled with them. They were piled everywhere. And sometimes you had to look around the piles of books to see someone sitting across from you at the dinner table. I have 5,000 books in the house. And periodically I try to cull because you can't. We, we have to live somewhere and we can't eat the books. So, you know, we have books everywhere. Sometimes I try to get them out the door. When I learned about all the books that she had, I asked Anna if she only read paper books or if she read ebooks as well. And she told me actually that she'll read anything. It's really just a question of what I have downloaded or bought. I have a preference for browsing in bookstores. I will often go in and come out with six, seven, eight, sometimes 10 books at once. What I buy online tends to be stuff that is somewhat ephemeral. That's funny because I actually have the same problem. I cannot leave a bookstore empty-handed. To me, the bookstore is the most magical, relaxing place on the earth. In fact, if I'm feeling stressed out, I will go to a bookstore to decompress It's not necessarily the best choice for my budget, but absolutely the best choice for my psyche. And actually, it's often a good choice for my body too, and not just my soul. I was telling Susan this, and it's kind of embarrassing because it's personal, but I feel all of my stress in my stomach. And when I'm really stressed out, I get constipated. But I found the best cure for occasional constipation for me is going to the bookstore. No word of a lie, within 10 minutes being in the stacks, I'm looking for a bathroom. Reading is just so relaxing to me. And it really doesn't matter to me if it's on paper or on a screen. As far as I'm concerned, there's benefits and drawbacks to both ebooks or print books. When I talked to Susan, she agreed. I am agnostic about how I read. I am completely content to read print or e. It really doesn't matter to me. I hadn't heard of this before, but there's this organization, it's called eBound Canada, where they help small independent publishers navigate this whole ebook publishing thing. Susan is one of the former chairs. And so eBound's efforts were initially to to build a collective that was big enough that we could negotiate a fair price so that people could do these things that really needed to be done. I read articles upon articles why e-books were better than print books and vice versa, but mostly I found that the argument for the e-book hinges on this environmental toll that book publishing has. And most of us think that a shift to e-books means that we're saving another tree, right? 
But this is interesting. An analysis by the Cleantech Group found that we have to read on average 22 books a year to get any sort of environmental benefit from the switch to ebooks. I know, it doesn't sound real. Like, if an ebook is already produced, it shouldn't matter how many people download it, the more the better, right? But when they factored in the environmental footprint of e-publishing, the computers needed to support cloud publishing, the environmental impact of e-readers and electronic devices, how people are replacing their electronic devices as soon as new electronic devices are available. I wouldn't have thought that this was the case. It actually makes me think twice, though, about upgrading my phone when the one I have still works. Some people that I talk to are crazy about their ebooks, and other people want nothing to do with them, say that nothing beats a paper book. Susan, she says that it's really a personal preference. It's just a different format and different people, like some people like hardcover books. I'm not one of them, you know? Some people only want paperbacks, that's me. All that it is is it's become a different avenue for people to get the book in the format they want. Although she says she prefers a print book over E, Christine pretty much predicts that the future of book publishing is digital. Well, I think we are marching to a almost completely digital society. It's, it's just more convenient that way. It's more environmentally friendly that way. But there will always be that small audience that wants the hard copy of the book. Like they'll become like collector's items. They're, they'll become special editions. So I have two kids, they're 15 and 16, and at the beginning of the lockdown, I think they were pretty happy that they didn't have to go back to school. And because my partner didn't have to go to work and I was doing school remotely, we had a chance to kind of rediscover one another. The four of us would play games together, but hmm, got kind of old pretty fast. So we kind of scattered in the house and found our own little corners and and did things by ourselves. And and for me, it was reading ebooks. I hid my bedroom and I would download a bunch of ebooks. I think I had like four or five going on at the same time, actually. But I think the appeal wasn't just how quickly I could access the books when I was buying them online. I loved the features that my app had. If there was something I came across while I was reading that I didn't understand, I could just touch the screen and the app would do a search and I would either have a definition or more information about what it was that I clicked on. I thought it was really cool. I asked Susan if she had noticed an increase in book sales during COVID. And, you know, it was a godsend when when the lockdown first happened before people figured out curbside pickup and all that sort of stuff, our digital sales, which had been, you know, kind of stuck at about 17% for three or four years, went up like crazy uh, to, to closer to 30% because all of a sudden people were locked down, they were reading, and the bookstores were fully closed and nobody knew how to figure out what we figured out as it went on, you know, uh, delivery, curbside pickup, all that sort of stuff. And so uh, digital's dropped down a little bit again as people have figured out that they can get back to bookstores, but it hasn't gone back down to 17%. So I think some people have converted fully to digital or like me, 
we'll read it either way, any way it comes. Ebooks, print books, audiobooks, they're all produced at the same time. So when I asked Susan if she thought that ebooks were going to take over the world, she said, it's not even a concern. I think we're so far past print and e, it's just an, it's just an assumption that this is the next hurdle and, and a really exciting one. As far as Susan's concerned, if you want to catch a glimpse of what the future of book publishing is, you need to look at accessibility. I think the next big thing that we're all trying to get better at is um, accessible books. You have to integrate what they call alt text or alternative text. All the things that we as sighted people take for granted are spoken about. The images have to be described. These days, the big kind of revolution is the recognition that we have the capacity now with digital media to create books for everybody. Anna agrees with Susan. There are more pressing concerns in book publishing, really, than the debate over ebook or print books, especially during COVID. She says we need to look at whether we can meet demand. It's interesting that during COVID, what they're saying is um, the biggest problem is running out of paper because people are buying more physical books. Book sales over this past year are really exponentially up. It's something nobody would have predicted. You would think people would be buying more books online, but they're they're not. They they want to buy physical copies, which is extraordinary to me. Talking with my friends in the book business, the problem is a kind of a positive negative problem. The books are flying out or would be if they still had books in the warehouse. They have more orders than books and there's a paper shortage and the cost of paper has gone up a lot. I think I've heard 100%. And not only has it gone up, but it's very hard to get. So the problem isn't whether books that people download are taking away your hard copy business. The problem is to keep up with the demand for your paper business. That seems to be the biggest concern. I And I was talking with a friend who runs um, a second story press. Her books have been sitting in a harbor in Vancouver, and she hasn't been able to get them to her warehouse because the workers from the ships are not there. She said she had 36,000 books sitting in a container, and she's been waiting to get them, and there are orders for these books. So this year for her could be a stellar, the best year ever, or a huge disappointment depending on what happens. I thought about all those books sitting in shipping containers and my mind automatically drifted back to the bookstore and how I miss going to the bookstore because between work and school, I don't really have a lot of time to go, but I really do miss it. But you know what? I found some of the best books that I've ever read in used bookstores. Browsing is not the same online. Those algorithms are not the same as the serendipitous kind of clapping your eyes on something that catches your attention because you don't even know. An algorithm is presuming you're working on a path. And the wonderful thing about a bookstore is you, you, you'll you look at a book that you had no idea you were going to be interested in 
and that is not like other things you've read. And machine learning still hasn't quite figured that out. And so there's no replacement for that. I think there's something magical about going to a used bookstore. I always feel like I'm on some sort of like adventure or something that I'm going to unearth some buried treasure there. It's just that they're so full of diverse stories. When I think about my own creative writing and the mystical sort of process that's involved, where I describe worlds that live solely in my imagination, if my kids were to ever see me when I'm deep into writing a novel, I think they'd think I had finally lost my mind because often I'm sitting there and I'm laughing so hard I'm vibrating or alternatively, I'm crying so hard I can't even see the screen. But I think anyone who writes creatively has the same experiences. I've often talked to Christine about this. I can't imagine life without writing. It's always been a part of who I am ever since I could pick up a pencil. I don't know if I'll ever publish my novels. It's kind of personal, you know? I'd feel so vulnerable putting it out there. Like when I compare my writing to other authors that I admire, I'm not even in the same league. When I was in my 20s, I used to read movie scripts for a friend of mine who made movies. And some of the scripts were okay, but a lot of them were, well, they were pretty awful. And every once in a while, I would come across one that I would get really excited about and I would run up to her and say, oh, you have to make this movie. I think if only because it wasn't awful. Anna and I laughed about my script reading days. She asked me if I would consider publishing my stories and I told her I didn't think so. Although I will admit that I did submit a short story to The New Yorker once. I think we all have stories in us and writing is fun, but just because we all have stories, I don't think that everyone can be an author. Everybody thinks they can write and they just don't see that there's any kind of magic in it. It's just, ah, what the hell? So do you, do you remember that? I don't know whether anybody ever told you the story about uh, Margaret Lawrence uh, sitting at a dinner party sitting next to a, a, a guy. And he says to her, well, and Ms. Lawrence, what, what do you do? And she says, well, I write. And he says, oh, well, when I retire, I'm gonna be a writer. And she says, what do you do now? And he says, well, I'm a brain surgeon. And she says, isn't that a coincidence? When I retire, I plan to take up brain surgery. Okay, so maybe I won't rule out ever publishing, but either way, I don't think I'll ever stop writing. I would go crazy without writing, legitimately. I am sure that writing fiction has saved me from snapping and killing someone. <laughs> I have friends who run when they're stressed. I have one friend who goes into her basement and tap dances. Writing, it's what I do when the world becomes too much for me. Murder mysteries are good things to be writing when you have a stressful job. Do you kill off the people at work? Well, generally you kill off a number of people who you think it'd be just a lot of fun to kill off. You can research absolutely diabolical 
ways to off them. And it's, I think it's therapeutic. It's good. And, and it's free. Like you even get paid for it. You sell the book. And instead of paying a therapist to get rid of your pent up rage, you write it out in a mystery. I'm sorry about the dog. She has opinions. <laughs> She's expressing them. Ah, yes, the dog. I think we've all been there when a pet or a kid or something comes in during a remote call. Anyway, if you like reading ebooks, there are just so many ways that you can get them. You can purchase them online, you can rent them from places like Kindle or Amazon Prime, you can sign them out of the library. And speaking of libraries, did you know that Google is working on compiling an open library? they call the Library Project, where they are scanning as many books as they can, hoping to make every book in the world available online. If you get a chance, look into it. It's really interesting. There's a huge debate over whether Google should even be allowed to do this. I was curious about what Susan's take on it was. I think it's the digital equivalent of a land grab. I'm fine with public domain stuff. You know, you can try and sell public domain stuff in print still and, and they're welcome to it. But to take co copyrighted material and put it up there for free, not only are you undermining the publisher's investment in that book, which is considerable, but you're taking away the author's right to make a royalty. And it's that thing that makes me crazy uh, that people always feel about the arts that we should give it away for free. Oh, you're so happy. You love what you do so much. You know, I love that cartoon that was going around a few years ago where there's the plumber with his rent saying, oh, I love what I do so much. I'm going to do it for free. And the lawyer saying, I love going to court so much. I'm doing and down, you know, to point out the ludicrousness of thinking that people don't deserve to be paid for their professional work. And so it's the Google thing is all glossed in this wonderful, you know, oh, for the good of humanity. But they're depriving people who make have a really hard time making a living at what they do. That's basically saying you think that all art should be amateur. Because people, you know, sure, they're gonna have their post-EJ job and they write at night, you know, like that's the assumption. What happens to writing as a professional career and, and possibility? So I think it's really disingenuous on their part, to tell you the truth. I like the idea of preserving books so they'll survive indefinitely because my heart breaks when I hear stories about whole libraries that are burned or destroyed or lost in wars or natural disasters. It feels to me like such a cultural loss. I don't believe that everything that is written down has legitimacy. I think there's a lot of garbage out there. There's books that are filled with lies or written to incite hate. But I think literature is important. I also like the idea that books should be accessible to everyone. I really believe that the only antidote to apathy is education. But I can also understand copyright. I believe that everyone should be able to make a living. It's interesting though, that in a society where we put so much value on being productive, that we don't place the same value on the production of art. Printed books, 
electronic books, audiobooks are all valuable contributions to our culture. I love audiobooks. When I'm traveling, I can put on an audiobook and go for hours. I haven't downloaded Anna's yet, but pretty sure it's going to be my next. Deceptions, my last book, people have been telling me, is really a terrific audiobook because the, the actor um, who does the reading has, is, she is so great. Now, I haven't heard it. I've got it here um, from Audible, but, but I haven't heard it. So, yeah, I think it's something I should do. I think the debate between ebooks and print books will rage on, but for my part, I really hope that print books don't become simply collector's items. I have so many fond memories of snuggling up alone and reading away a rainy afternoon, or especially wonderful memories of sitting with my little boys and reading a favorite book for like the 50th time. Books are just such a big part of our lives. There's no greater joy than looking at a book that has been autographed by one of my favorite authors. I remember waiting in line for hours outside a Vancouver bookstore to get Anne Rice to autograph a stack of my novels. And if you don't know Anne Rice, check out Interview with a Vampire. It's exceptional. I always buy my favorite books in paperback or hardcover because just the sensation of holding a book to feel its weight, flipping the paper and even the smell. <laughs> even even new books have such a wonderful smell. <laughs> it takes you out of reality more than an e-reader can. Since I grew up reading paperback books, it just is not the same reading e-books anymore. I prefer an actual physical book just for the tactile sensations of reading with a book that way. Just to hold, to feel the weight of something, to flip the pages just like something's happening and I have to flip that page faster rather than just sitting there and going click, click, click. But there's no replacement for picking up a new book and sniffing it. That smell when you when 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 you open it up and you smell the ink and the paper and all that sort of stuff. They need scratch and sniff or something on an ebook. <laughs> hmm. What an interesting thought. Scratch and sniff ebooks. <laughs> could happen. I've loved talking about books with you today. I could talk about books forever, if you'll let me. Thank you so much for indulging me. And let me take this opportunity to thank Anna Porter, Susan Renouf, and Christine Rains for sharing their thoughts with me. I think I'm just about ready to head into my quiet little nook with a book I'm working on. The one I'm reading right now is called Walking Away From Hate. Uh, my friend Jeanette Manning and her daughter Lauren wrote it. It's a story about human spirit. It's about unconditional love, resilience, strength, hope. But most of my favorites are. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye.
This episode of Unraveled was reported and produced by Alison Hannaford. I'm your host, Efoam Fodro. Our associate producer is Taha Hashmani, and our executive producer is Elena Duluigi. Special thanks to John Powers for composing our theme music, and Ben Shelley for creating our podcast artwork. Our professor is Amanda Capito, and special thanks to Lindsay Hanna and Angela Glover.